in these last couple weeks, maybe, maybe you've been thinking about, and it's come to mind even, uh, the idea of, of revival, uh, as we hear about it um, in our country, possible revival. So I think of that, I think of new life, as we look at this passage and we walk through John, I think of being um, this call to be born again, as we hear the words of Jesus to Nicodemus that we studied a few weeks ago. I think of the living water that Jesus offered to the woman at the well, uh, living water welling up to new life, to eternal life, and that village um, that's turned upside down for Jesus that we we read about last week, revival. Well, in John, the section that we've been in that we're, we're finishing out this week has been chapter 2 through chapter 4, and it began with the first sign that John points to, a sign that was first done by Jesus in Galilee. If you remember, it was that turning the water into wine at the wedding feast, and it was this picture of new life. Uh, as Jesus is beginning, began his ministry, making all things new, even breathing new spiritual life in, in stone-dead things and um, religious practices, and Jesus comes in. And then it, today we'll talk about that second sign that closes up this section where he heals a boy, uh, a son, who is near death, and we're going to see that. And we have a lot going on in between. Again, we, have, we go from a wedding feast where Jesus turns water to wine, and then Jesus goes into Jerusalem and cleans out that temple. And if you remember, as he's cleaning and restoring the temple, he's restoring right worship, an area that was reserved for the people of all nations to go and pray to God was made into a, a, a den of robbers. And, and we see um, this... Jesus come in with all authority. Then we have a, a theological discussion, theologically rich conversation with Nicodemus, the Pharisee, who comes and seeks out Jesus, and Jesus speaks to him about being born again, a new life that comes about through the Holy Spirit and this call of Nicodemus. And we know that Nicodemus leaves considering, thinking about these things. And, and then we have... The story of Jesus coming to the well, and the Samaritan woman comes to that well, and we see there's a conversation between this woman who is wearied and tired, and she comes there, and Jesus digs deep into her life, and even pulls back a curtain of her sin and the need that she desperately had of Jesus and offers her living water, new spiritual life. And we see that she hears and she responds and she believes that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. She goes back to her town. She tells them and they, she says, come and see this man. And they go out and they see Jesus and they believe. And he spends a couple days there. And that's kind of where it begins. And, and we take us to this verse this week. But we do think, um, as you may have heard in the news, we think about revival. Um, maybe you've probably heard about Asbury University, where they began a worship service um, a week ago Wednesday. Um, so it's like a week and a half that's just continued. And, and there's an amazing thing about it um, is it's not necessarily marked by great signs and wonders. 
um, but by repentant hearts. Uh, and the sermon that began that all off was just a call to the students in Romans 12 to consider the commands in those verses and um, consider the call even to love God and to wrestle with those things. And they did. They began to. And um, we pray that indeed that there would be many, many lives changed as the, the Spirit seems to be blowing through that stu student body and those around. So we think about new life, awakening, and we pray for that ourselves as well. So last week, we closed with verse 42. And let me read that verse one more time for us. It says that they said to the woman, this is the, the people of the town that the woman at the well lived in, in Samaria. She said, they said to her, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Talk about open eyes, awakening, a whole town rocked by Jesus. And that's what we need to be reminded of this morning as well, of who Jesus is. And as we look at the story of Jesus, too, we, we see that people come for, to Jesus for different reasons. And the question might be, who are you seeking as you seek Jesus? What are you seeking how are you going to respond as we understand who Jesus is? And we have all of that in the text. And then also we're going to we'll see things about death to life in this passage as well and be looking for those as we walk through. But we begin and we just have the question of what type of Jesus even are we seeking? And what type of Jesus? What were the people seeking? And we see some disappointment in the words of Jesus of the people. Verse 43. After two days he departed from Galilee, for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Again, you remember Jesus, he's going from Jerusalem, from Judea, and he's traveling back to Galilee up north um, to where Nazareth is, uh, kind of his home stomping ground, and he's going back there, and he, they travel through um, um, Samaria. So there's this traveling that's happening, and he goes, and he finally gets to Galilee, and then we see that John, the Apostle John, as he writes, he gives us a little editorial note. He says, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So I think it's interesting as he goes and he, he's returning to his hometown, or maybe in your translation it says home country. Um, he's going to his home turf. He's going to the region of Galilee. And Nazareth is in Galilee. This is where he grew up. So that's where he's heading. And a real wooden translation of that would be well, fatherland. So he's heading, again, to his home country, his, his home turf, to go there. And we see as he goes there that he realizes that he's not going to be honored there. It says in Galilee, he's not honored. And in what sense? We'll see that he's not honored. He's not believed to be the Messiah. He's not believed to be the Savior of the world by his fellow Galileans. In the Gospel of Matthew, they see Jesus in, in Nazareth, and they, they hear him teaching. They're like, man, that's, that's Joseph's boy. He, he's the son of a, a carpenter. We know we, they're his brothers, his sisters. We know him. What? And they just took offense at him. They didn't see him for who he was. They did not honor him and have true faith. They weren't like the Samaritans. They didn't leave from being with Jesus and say, this is the Savior of the world. They didn't respond that way. And then as we go, well, we see that 
nonetheless, Jesus goes there. Why is he going there? Well, he's going there because he's not honored there. He's going there because there are people that need to, to hear again. There are people who have yet to believe, people who have yet to honor him. And he, he goes there for they haven't yet honored him. And one thing interesting about Jesus, he often goes where it's difficult. Um, and even following Jesus often means going where it's difficult or doing things that are difficult. And sometimes we'll think if something's too difficult, we're like, well, God's probably not calling me to that. It's a little difficult. Um, but often, more often than not, he calls us to hard things. Not always, but he does. If Jesus is one who says, if you would come after me, what does he call us to do? Um, to t- take a nap and relax? No, he says, deny yourself and take up our cross and follow him. So it can be difficult. So he goes to a difficult place where he's not going to be honored, and yet he goes there just because for that reason he goes for he will not be honored. They need continued witness. They need to hear the gospel again. So he goes there. And then verse 45, it's kind of this interesting, it's one of those verses when you read through it, you might be like, huh? I know I was. Uh, So it says here, so when Jesus, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So it says, first, they don't honor him, but then it says the Galileans welcomed him. So you're like, well, what is going on here? At first, I think as you read that, you can say, well, it seems like there's like a a contradiction here of what's going on. Um, In what sense um, did they, they welcome him? Well, we see that they, they had seen things that Jesus had done in Jerusalem. Jesus had traveled to Jerusalem for the feast that was during that time, and they had traveled as well, and, and it says that he had done miracles there. I think in um, chapter 2, verse 23 and 24 20 through 25 speak about that. And they'd seen those things. Or it may be, um, too, that they'd heard about the water turned to wine, and um, so they, they, they warmly welcome him, but it says but they didn't honor him. So what is going on? How do we make sense of this contradiction, apparent contradiction here? Well, as I was studying through it, uh, one thing I read by D.A. Carson, who's a lot smarter than I am, a uh, theological um, Yoda maybe, or guru, I don't know, a really, really smart guy. Uh, And he said um, that there's at least 10 different solutions that people have proposed to this problem. And I was like, oh, that's not helpful. Um, But um, he also kind of dug in, and as I continue to see, a lot of times the most simple answer, the most evident in the text, that's the answer here. And I think that's what we see here. I don't think it's as complicated as maybe some might want to make it to be. And I was helped as well by uh, my pastor in Kentucky, a previous pastor from his commentary, Dr. Cook, and he said this. And I think it, it, it helps bring clarity to this. It says, at first, verses 43 through 44, they appear to be contradicting one another. When Galileans welcome Jesus, it is based on their amazement of his miracles. And we're going to see that in the text. We already read it, but we're going to see that. Uh, And not on true faith. Jesus sharply criticized their desire for signs and wonders. So we will see even in the story about Jesus healing this boy that he does rebuke not just the man, but the crowds, for them just wanting to see signs. They desire to see some more signs and wonders. They want to show. And even when it speaks in John chapter 2, 
when it said people saw his miracles, they entrusted themselves to him. But then it says that Jesus didn't entrust himself to the people because he knew what was in their hearts. They just wanted to see a show. They wanted to get from him. They did not really wanting um, to have the curtain pulled back on their lives and called to repent and believe. They just want um, miracles. They want signs and wonders. So yes, they welcome him, but they're not welcoming him as the Messiah and the Savior of the world, and maybe not even really as a prophet, but just as a sign and wonder type guy. Uh, they want a show and provision, but not a Savior, uh, not a Savior of the world. You think of the woman at the well. Um, Jesus, although he showed his power by telling her things in her life that, that only he could know if he was the son of God, but he doesn't perform. It doesn't speak of Jesus performing any signs and wonders. It doesn't speak of him healing the sick or opening eyes. And at the well, you think, Jesus, maybe he could have turned that water in that well into wine right there and be like, see, here, here's this. Or maybe made it just gush forth, make, turn that well into a geyser and just show the signs and wonders. But that doesn't happen. And yet these people still repent and believe. And they spend time with Jesus. They hear his words and they say, this is the savior of the world. And yet the people in Galilee, they're like, show us signs and wonders. Maybe they had been to that wedding in Canaan. And they're like, can we have some more of that fine wine? That's kind of what I'm thinking they're saying. They're not seeking the teachings of the words in a relationship with Jesus. And I think sometimes that could be the case for us too. We can want to just have an experience. And, and one thing too, I think thinking of that Asbury revival, I think some people are flooding there. They want an experience. Um, I've heard some that aren't connected to any home church or things, and they just... But they're like, oh, let's go and let's have an experience there. And um, I don't think that's what we're called to. Uh, we're called to have humble, um, repentant hearts before the one true God. And if we're going there, if we travel there, if we pilgrim there, um, to be humbled in heart, then I think that's right. Uh, and sometimes we can just want signs and wonders. And that's one of the, I think, hopeful things, even in that, this revival in Asbury. It's from reports I've heard of people who have gone and, and some of the professors that I, I know have been there. That uh, one, of, one of my professors, he's an evangelism professor, and he's just mentioned that at the heart of, of revivals throughout the ages, repentance has been at the heart of it, a heart turning back to God. And when he went and visited, he felt like there was a repentant heart and spirit of that. So that's hopeful. May we continue to pray even for our own. But the people, they wanted an experience from Jesus. They didn't necessarily want their hearts and their lives changed by Jesus. So we continue. And the question, what are you seeking from Jesus, as well comes as we look at the story of this official. It says, so Jesus, he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When his, this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So here we have this story. There's this royal official that comes to Jesus. And he was a, a royal official. He probably worked for a, in the Roman government. We don't know all the details, but, but this term of official would be that of a royal official. Um, a governmental official of some capacity, and there's some who believe that he was 
a centurion. So he may have been a Roman centurion. And that would mean he was a Gentile. And at least he was one who, if he's working as a royal official, uh, working for Rome, in some sense, he, even if he is a Jew, he's, he's turned his back on his people to serve the enemy, in a sense. And yet he goes to Jesus. And be on the lookout here as we walk through this passage of this picture of death to life. It's an important thing, and we're going to see later in John chapter 5 as we get into that next week and the weeks after that, that there is a huge theme as Jesus speaks about passing from death to life when we find life in Him, that we have eternal life in Him. So it's in the background, so be looking for that. But this official, he travels. He travels from Capernaum, which is also in Galilee, and he goes up to Cana. So Cana is... From traveling to Capernaum and Cana, it was kind of a windy, hilly road. He had to get there. And from the different accounts I read, it was somewhere between 16 and 18 miles. I guess it depended on the road you take. Um, And he travels to Cana because he hears that Jesus is there. And I I don't know. I don't know how he heard. But maybe he heard from a friend or a family or maybe someone in his connections as a royal Roman official that he hears about Jesus. Maybe he'd heard about that Jesus had gone to the temple and cleared out the temple. Maybe he'd heard about the other miracles that he had performed in Jerusalem. Or maybe he just heard about the water turned to wine. Whatever it is, he's heard enough about Jesus to know, I think Jesus might be able to help. And at this point, I would imagine that he is just exhausted um, as far as seeking help for his son. And in his position, he would have probably had more opportunity to seek out different ways to cure his son than maybe other people, the common person might have had, but he hasn't found any relief. So he hears now that Jesus is in Galilee. He's in Cana. So he decides, I'm going to go. I'm going to go and travel. I'm going to travel to Cana. And I'm going to meet Jesus. And I'm going to see Jesus. So he journeys there with no doubt great hope, at least some hope, that this, this healer can heal his son. So he goes and he finds his way to Jesus. In verse 47, we have this, that he goes and he speaks to Jesus and asking him to heal his son, to come down to Capernaum, for his son is at the point of death. And I would imagine that at this point, there's probably crowds around Jesus. There are those who are... are Maybe, maybe he's healing. I don't know if he's teaching. I don't know all that's going on. But he, the official comes and he finds Jesus. And he is one who is a person of authority during that time. Maybe even a centurion uh, who would have been a Roman commander of 100 men. And he, one with authority, comes with great humility to Jesus. Jesus is a son of a carpenter, a Jew, but he goes to him asking, or maybe your translation says, he beseeched Jesus, or he begged Jesus, he implored Jesus, he said, Jesus, please come heal my dying son. And I can just imagine him falling at the knees of Jesus. I don't know if he did, but I think that might be what I would do. Jesus, come heal. And this verse 48, so Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. 
So it seems kind of strange. This man comes beseeching him, come heal my son. And, and Jesus rebukes him in a way. And he speaks of the imperfect faith or the motives of the man that comes to seek him. But he's not just speaking to the man there. No doubt his eyes went up to the crowds and the people of Galilee, and he speaks to them as well. And we know that because of the language he used. He says, unless you, and maybe in your Bible, I know in the, in the journals that we have with that, uh, it doesn't have the footnote, but that you is plural. It's not just you to the man. He's saying you all, all y'all, if we had the Texas translation. All y'all. He looks up. You will never believe me until I do signs and wonders. Unless you see these things, you just won't believe. So he's speaking to the man, but all those who are around him, who did not honor him as Messiah, who did not honor him as the Savior of the world, but were seeking a spectacle, a performance. They were seeking for their bellies to be filled or the wine glasses filled up. And he calls them out for a moment on that. He's teaching. We can note, too, as we think about these words, there are oftentimes where Jesus speaks in such a way that we might have shied away with if we wanted just crowds and numbers. Jesus isn't worried about being popular, being famous. He's worried about speaking the truth. And sometimes Jesus says things that for the half-hearted... They will walk away, but for those who are sincere, they'll come closer to understand better of what Jesus just said. What did he just say? Why did he say this? So Jesus wasn't about putting on a show. He wasn't concerned about the production value of his speech or his sermons or an event. He wanted those who would worship in spirit and truth. And we see that. as he, Remember how he spoke with a woman at the well and said that there would be a day where you, you don't have to travel to, to Jerusalem or, or to this mountain or that mountain, but you can worship God in spirit and in truth. And we see that Jesus isn't concerned with numbers here. But then we see the official in verse 49. The official says to Jesus, Sir, come down before my child dies. So the man, he's not hindered. He persists. He persists to go again and again to Jesus. And he says, come down, heal my little child. It could literally, maybe in your translation, it says that little child. It's used the diminutive. So like in Spanish, for a son, you have hijo. Or if you want to make it even more cute and endearing, you say hijito. And then this is kind of that little thing. My little child, he's going to die. So he's passionately asking Jesus to come. But there's still some confusion as well in his words as he uses a command like, he uses an imperative, come. But you can't really command Jesus in that way. He's the Messiah. He's Lord. But how does Jesus respond? See Jesus in verse 50. Jesus says to him, go, your son will live. Go, your son will live. So Jesus, he doesn't reject the man. He doesn't say, oh, you don't get this. Instead, um, he takes the meager faith of the man and, and heals this boy. 
He draws the man in, and he will grow in faith. We'll see a couple more steps of the man growing in faith in Jesus. So Jesus shows compassion to him. This man whose faith maybe was mostly focused on Jesus as healer, but that shifts, um, that changes, even in this, these few verses that we see. And Jesus says, go, go back, your son, he will live. And Jesus speaks with great authority as he heals the boy from miles away and heals him, bringing not just healing, physical healing into that family, but we're going to see the healing of soul. Um, They need Jesus. They need this living water that Jesus offers. They need to be born again. They need new life in him. And we see this progression in the life of this man and his whole family. So the deepest need of the family was not just the healing of this boy, but the healing of their souls, that they might know the one true living God and declare with all those Samaritans as well the same thing, that he is the savior of the world. That was their their deepest need. They needed new life, eternal life, all these things that we've seen in these, these short three chapters. And how does he respond? It says, the man believed. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. So the man believed the word of Jesus, and he went. He went on. He heads back, believing that Jesus has healed his son. So it's a step of faith, even, believing the words of Jesus. He hadn't seen any evidence of his son healed, but he goes in faith, knowing that this is done. So he places his faith in the healing of Jesus, that Jesus has done what he has said he would do, and he heads back. Verse 51 for 53, as he was going down, his servant met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew That was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. So this journey continues. He heads home there and one of the servants comes and says, your boy, he's recovered. The fever's left him. He said, what time? When was it? I'm sure he was curious. When, what moment was my son healed? And it's the seventh hour. And he's like, man, that was it. That's when Jesus said, He's healed. Go home. He will live. And we see his faith grow into genuine faith in Jesus as it says that he believed and his whole household believed. And this is a pattern we see in Acts as well that demonstrates when a family places their faith in Jesus and and embraces the new life that comes through Jesus alone. They believed. They believed. Just like that whole village of Samaritans. They too believed. They received the need of their son healed, but Jesus gave them so much more. They believed in him. Things are changing. In these verses, we see, we do see Jesus as he does. He teaches using the physical world. He teaches spiritual truths here. And we see of this boy and his illness that he's near death. So we see this picture of death three different times. It says, verse 46, that his son was ill. And then verse 47, that he was at the point of death. And then verse 49 says, come down before my child dies. So it becomes clear. He's sick. He's going to die. He's going to die. He's, he's, he's as good as dead is the point. 
apart from the healing of Jesus, good is dead. And we're reminded that in truth, in reality, that there was a, a greater um, death um, that they could have faced apart from Jesus. There, We all are, are dead in sin apart from God. We need new life. We need forgiveness. We need restoration. And we see this pictured. And then we have four corresponding words about life. Verse 50, your son will live, Jesus says. And then we see 51, your son recovered. 52, the fever left him. And then again, a uh, repeat of the words of Jesus, your son will live in verse 43. So we have death to life. The son was good as dead. He made alive in Jesus. And then the whole family believes and they have new life, eternal life. They've received that living water, that new birth that Jesus speaks of, forgiven, made righteous. Jesus is gracious upon them. And they move from death to life. In chapter 5, we're going to see just several places where Jesus speaks about that. This is verse 24 in, in chapter 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So we'll see the teachings of Jesus, and we see a picture of it in this boy. So the kingdom is spreading. The gospel is being preached. It's moving from, from Jew to Samaritan to Gentile, most likely, or probably of this man. Many are believing in Jesus. He was seeking one thing, but he received so much more along with the life of the Son. And then verse 54, um, just as we think, as we close out this section of verses two, or chapter 2 through chapter 4, how will we respond to Jesus? And this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So this is the second sign. Again, there's these, these bookends of the first sign of turning the water into wine in Cana, and then he goes back to Cana, and he, he heals this boy and brings him back to life. And we have all these things about new life in the middle, being born again, living water, people repenting, people turning to Jesus. And who responds? I think that's a good question. Who responds in these chapters? I think it's interesting. I think it's unlikely people people who are kind of outsiders. You see the disciples. Um, they believe they're a bunch of fishermen. They're, they're not religious leaders. And yet they trust and they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. The Samaritan woman, Samaritans were outcasts to the Jews. They didn't want to have anything to do with him. And yet she believes. Again, she, she doesn't see really signs and wonders. Jesus speaks truth about her past. But he also, and he does that, he reveals her sin. And yet she still turns and lovingly trusts in Jesus and speaks about her to everyone. And they repent and believe. This Samaritan village, they believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And this royal official, either a Gentile or one who is a countryman who betraying his own countryman by being employed by the Romans, um, an outsider, yet they believe. The question, who does not yet believe? Well, think of Jesus clearing out um, the temple. Um, think of the crowds that see him and they have some sort of belief, but Jesus is yet to entrust himself to them, knowing their heart and 
kind of their, their mixed understanding. Uh, think of Nicodemus. He moves one close, one step closer to trusting in Jesus. He's a Pharisee, but he has yet to believe. And the Galileans, his hometown, they, they just want signs and wonders, but they don't honor him as a Messiah, as a Savior, as the Son of God. Maybe they were just a little bit too familiar with him. I think sometimes um, we can fall into that category as well, and we forget if we've been around Jesus. Sometimes we can even just be fans of Jesus, but not actually followers of the one true God. As we look at this account today, I think we can be reminded, too, of just our great need for Jesus. That initial need of Jesus giving us new life to, to move us from death to life, from dead in our sins to alive in Him. And this story can remind us um, that, yes, Jesus, he can, he can do many amazing things in our life. Um, he can heal us. He, he can open doors to different opportunities for us, but we aren't called to seek him for that. We seek him as the Savior of the world, the one who can give us new, true life in him. And we need that. We need to move from death to light. And we need to be reminded, too, that apart from Jesus, we're people who are without hope, without God in this world. We need Jesus. I also think, um, as I think of this story, I think of this, this father who, who goes to Jesus. He needs help with his son. He's like, I can't do anything. I can't heal him. Will you heal him? And I think, too, um, for our kids, um, maybe kids or maybe grandkids, nieces and nephews, those in our life. And I think as a parent, there's often times I'm just like, I don't know. And even time this week, I'm like, Jesus, I don't know how to parent well. <laughs> there's so many just sidious things that try to attack our kids. And I'm like, how do I ever protect my kids? And I'm reminded as I go to Jesus, the first thing I need to go, first and foremost, is that they'd have new life in him. Jesus, rescue them, guard them, protect them. And then I'm also reminded, there was a time this week too, <laughs> um, I feel like there's in a sense a, a call of Jesus to this man and trust his son to him. <laughs> go, he's healed. And a bit in my own life, just that same call, um, moment just in the stillness with the Lord of him just saying, entrust your kids to me. And the thing they most need is Jesus. Not a great college, not a sports scholarship, not the best friends in the school, not popularity. Um, they just need Jesus. Dear Father God, we come before you. At times our hearts are, are tempted to seek you for all sorts of things. Lord, we do have physical needs. We do have emotional needs. And we do have just even financial needs. Um, but Lord, help us to trust you, knowing that our hope is not being rescued from those things, but you're sustaining us in them. 
Lord, help us to um, come before you, even on our knees to speak. Declaring you as Savior, Savior of our own life, our own hearts, Savior of our families, Savior of the world. Lord, help us to come with repentant hearts as well, being willing to listen and hear and allow you to pull back the curtain in our heart of our sins that we might repent and trust you and that you might do your work in us. Lord, help us to trust you with with big things in our life that we know are out of our control and we can't can't fix them. Now, we're not the saviors of the situation. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to entrust our kids. Help us to entrust grandkids and other family members and maybe coworkers and neighbors who we love. And Lord, help us to entrust them to you. Knowing, knowing that in a word, you can bring life. Lord, help us to be agents of your, of your life and of your grace to others. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.